Last week we talked about uh, killing sin. So we talked a little bit about how Paul in chapter 2 of Colossians uh, makes the contrast between uh, the old life, we were dead to God, but in Christ and because of Jesus, we are now dead to the world and alive to Christ. Now in chapter 3, Paul picks up the natural corollary of behavior, which is now that we're dead to sin and alive to Christ, we have to kill the behaviors that are left over from that old life. Last week we talked about killing sin, and now we're talking about putting on new behaviors that comport with our new life, our new humanity, what it means to be new creations in Christ. Colossians 3 Uh, Verses 12 through 17 read, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you are called into one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And finally, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen. Father, now we, uh, we just seek your presence, uh, your abiding presence. Um, presence and wisdom, the unction and anointing of your spirit to illuminate our hearts this morning, uh, illuminate the words that are spoken and even the way we hear them, that our hearts would be uh, transformed, convicted by your word, that we would be convinced of the truth of these claims. Lord, we pray that you would make us uh, and transform our behaviors to comport with our new nature as new human beings in Jesus. We pray these things in the name of your Son. Amen. Uh, For years now, I've had this dream. Um, I don't know that I've had it since I've been here, but I've had it for years. I've been in pulpit ministry a long time, and it's this dream that I'm in church on Sunday morning sitting in the pew without my shirt on. I, I, it, yeah, it's just a recurring dream. It doesn't happen every night, but it just, it visits me. <laughs> you know, it's not a nightmare, but it's a bad dream. And I'm sitting in church, and I've got my, you know, my khakis or my slacks on, but I just have no shirt on, and it's always kind of cool. It's like cold, you know, it's like the AC is on, so, you know, I've got goosebumps or something, and I'm covering my chest, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I've got no shirt on. It's just this recurring dream. And um, I'm sure there's a psychological explanation for it. Um, You know, there there are people out there, I'm sure, who interpret dreams. You know, I'm sure there's a good reason for it. But if I could use one word to describe the feeling, 
in this dream, it would be shame. There's just a feeling of shame. I mean, imagine you're sitting in church with no shirt on. Well, it's worse for the women, but guys, I mean, you know, just, it's, it's just a feeling of shame. When Adam and Eve um, disobeyed in the Garden of Eden and ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, their eyes were open, and they knew that they were what? They knew that they were naked. Now the question is, were they truly naked before they ate, or were they so pure and innocent that not having clothes on simply didn't mean what it means you know, now? Because they were, in a sense, before the fall, clothed in purity and righteousness and virtue. I think somewhere there's an echo of that story in Paul's words. Obviously, the Holy Spirit uh, breathes out the word of God through the writers of Scripture, but they're not always aware. They were not always aware of exactly of some of the biblical echoes that they were touching on necessarily. Uh, there's actually a great book on this by Richard B. Hayes called uh, Echoes of Scripture in the Letters of Paul. It's an excellent book. But anyway, so there's this echo that Paul is touching on, that the old life was a life where we were uncovered, right? Before we came to know Christ, we were uncovered and in a sense naked. And so there was this deep sense of shame. And so I think that's the metaphor that Paul is consciously or subconsciously using here um, of this idea of putting on the new humanity. It's being clothed. It's this removal of shame. In Christ, the shame of our past and sin is removed, and uh, we, we put on, we take off those shabby garments of the old life, and we put on this new life, the filthy rags of sexual immorality that Paul talked about. Remember, we talked about that last week. The filthy rags of pride and anger and backbiting and lies have been taken off, and um, we read in Christ, uh, we read in uh, um, the Bible that in Christ, uh, particularly verse 9, um, that we have put the old things off and we have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after uh, the image of its creator. We've, we've put on the new self. So there's been this real change in us. Um, by God's grace, we're new people. And in a real sense, uh, being clothed with virtue which is what Paul is admonishing us here. We're about to get into it. Uh, being clothed in virtue is really the recovery of the image of God that Adam and Eve had but lost. So being clothed in virtue is this recovery of what Adam and Eve had in the garden, what humanity was meant for. Humanity was meant to reflect the image of God in righteousness and holiness and purity and in virtue. And so when we put on the new humanity with these vir this list of virtues that we're about to talk about, it's this recovery of what God originally intended for us to be. So there's three things I want us to see this morning um, from these verses, uh, verses 12 through 17. One, we're to clothe ourselves with grace and forgiveness. Uh, two, our lives are to be ruled by peace and thanksgiving. And then three, the new humanity, God's new creations, the church, 
is to be a worshiping community, all right? We're to clothe ourselves with grace and forgiveness. Our lives are to be ruled by peace and thanksgiving, and we're to be a worshiping community. So remember, we remember last week, uh, verses 5 and 8 had these two lists of uh, sins that we were to mortify and kill. Well, now in verse 12, Paul gives us a list with these five virtues. Or, uh, and just so you know, you know, we're talking about vice and virtue. Vice, immoral or wicked behavior. That's what a vice is. You know, if you talk about vices, you're talking about immoral habits, immoral behaviors. If you talk about virtues, we're talking about behavior that is morally righteous, okay? Virtues are morally righteous behaviors. Vices are uh, morally wicked behaviors. So number one, we're to clothe ourselves with grace and forgiveness. Verse 12, it says, put on then or clothe yourself as God's holy and beloved chosen ones with compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. So here's this language of God's, his, God's people from the Old Testament, right? So there's this continuity. In the Old Testament, Israel was called God's chosen, God's beloved. And right through the New Testament, we're incorporated into that idea of God's beloved and chosen holy ones, God's holy people. There's a continuity there. And what's instructive for us is um, that these five graces are how Christians are to conduct themselves, which means this, these five things that inform how we're to live are making the point that our vertical relationships, our vertical relationship with God um, ought, to, uh, ought to reflect itself out in our horizontal interactions with each other, right? We're not we're not uh, um, compassionate with God. We're not showing kindness to God. We're not, you know, showing humility it's, and, and meekness with God. I mean, we can. We're not being patient with God. These are virtues that we're to embody to each other, right? We're supposed to embody these virtues to each other. And so, so this is what it means to put on and clothe ourselves with, with these virtues, grace and forgiveness. So just a quick run through. Compassion just for a definition, is a deep sensitivity to the needs and sorrows of others. Kindness is the quality of being friendly or generous and considerate. Humility is a Christ-like attitude towards yourself, which ultimately is exemplified in forgoing your own rights. Humility. It's an attitude about yourself more than it is anything. What you think about yourself. People who think that they're great... Right? They're God's gift to humanity. Well, we call that pride, right? Well, humility would be the opposite. It's an attitude about yourself that, that uh, realizes that you know, you're not the king of the world and, and, and you, don't, you shouldn't always demand your rights, right? No, I want to be treated right. I deserve this. I deserve that, you know? Um, it's always a fine balance when you go to the restaurant, you know, and you get like a dirty spoon or something. You know, you don't want to make a, you know, you don't want to make a scene, but at, at some point, you know, should I make us think about this, you know? You know, I mean, you don't want germs on your, but, you know, I, I don't know where that came from. I got off and I'm, I'm thinking about, like, the bad experiences I've had in restaurants. I don't know. But uh, humility is this attitude about yourself that you feel like you, you know, if you're, if you're humble, you don't feel like you should always demand your rights all the time. You can forgo your rights, right? Um, 
And meekness is a gentle approach to others. Simple definition. Meekness is a gentle approach to others. And then patience is the Patience is the effect of meekness in how you react to, to other people. I don't know about you, but, you know, sometimes people say things that drive me nuts, and I, I you know, I find myself just, you know, I'm, I'm holding it in. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to process through those emotions and demonstrate patience. You know, because my natural, my, I don't know about you, but my natural, you know, kind of tendency, I'm becoming more self-aware. I've been more self-aware in the last few years, but my natural reaction is just to, you know, you know, fire off, you know? And so I've got to capture that with patience. Um, but all these things are lovely. I mean, right, they sound great. Uh, but these things can be hard to embody, can't they? Right, these virtues can be, they can be hard for us to embody. Um, and one of the reasons for that is that the world can be cold and we can be hardened by the world. And, it's, and so it's easy to be mercenary in our dealings with people. Um, I saw this a lot, especially in Southern California, where it was so congested, and there's so many people, and people are competition for the freeway or your place in the post office, and so you just kind of, you know, it's like you just take no prisoners, and, but we can, we can be that way. We can be mercenary in our dealings with other people, uh, you know, as a survival mechanism. You know, perhaps we're more Darwinian than we care to admit, you know, the strong surviving, you know, take no prisoners and leave a trail of dead bodies in our wake. That's not what God has called us to, though. Um, when we're wronged, our initial reaction is what? Is to pay people back. That's our initial reaction, right? God says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. Um, but, you know, the vigilante in us wants revenge. We want justice. We want to see that those who have wronged us and betrayed us uh, get what they deserve, right? We all love vigilante movies, right? I mean, we, we all love seeing the bad guy, the perpetrator, get it. You know, when I was a kid, I think it was uh, Charles, anybody remember Charles Bronson? You know, Charles Bronson. I thought of those movies called Death Wish or something like that, you know? You know, his wife was killed and he goes out and he's got like a, you know, a 350, I think it was a 357. And that, it, that, that, those movies made the 357 popular. Maybe Paul knows, I don't know. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, we, we, every, those movies were huge. We just, you know, the vigilant, we want to see the bad guy get it. Well, in our world, what happens is, you know, we kind of make up our mind, you know, who the bad guy is. Anyone who crosses us is the bad guy. We want to see vengeance. But God calls us, right, he says, he calls us to forgo vengeance because he says it's mine. It belongs to me. So then here's the question. How do we clothe ourselves with kind and compassionate hearts and be meek and humble and patient, especially, especially when others have wronged us. How do we do this? Well, verse 13 gives us the answer. It says to bear with one another, forgive each other, and if someone has a quarrel, forgive them just as Christ has forgiven you. That's how you embody these virtues of humility and patience and all these things is you're forgiving to other people. You embody the forgiveness that God has expressed to us. This is what it looks like to be God's people. This is what it looks like to be the new humanity. We embody forgiveness. Forgiveness comes pouring out from us because we've received it. As a matter of fact, every time you forgive, you're reenacting the gospel. Did you know that? 
When you forgive, you are reenacting the gospel because the cross of Jesus Christ and all of the work of redemption is about forgiveness. It is about God making it possible for us to be forgiven once and for all. And so when we forgive, we're living in the grace and the truth of that. We're living with the knowledge that I deserved forgiveness or I wouldn't be here. I need to give it. Right? You remember the parable about the man who owned 10, 000, owed 10,000 talents? And when he confessed to the king that he couldn't repay, the king frankly forgave him? He just outright, okay, you know what? The debt's wiped away. And what did he do? He goes out and he grabs, he grabs someone who owed him just a small amount and he took him by the throat and he says, pay me what you owe me. And he threw him in jail and the king finds out about it and he wasn't very happy. What does he do to that, that one who had been forgiven but didn't forgive? He throws him in prison. You know, I mean, there's no mercy for him. In the Lord's Prayer, when the apostle said, how should we pray? Part of it, right, part of the Lord's Prayer is this. Forgive us our debts. Who knows the next line? Yeah, as we forgive our debtors. In other words, forgive us the debt we owe you, God, as we are forgiving those who owe us a debt. Th that word in the original language can be translated three different ways. It can be translated sin, forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sinned against us. Forgive us our debts, as we forgive those who are indebted to us. Or forgive us our trespasses. And so all of these, all of these words have the idea of an offense, right? You, you, there's an offense that has created a debt. And, and God is saying, right, um, if, if you don't forgive, you're, you know, Jesus says, your father in heaven won't forgive you. We have to forgive. Um, you know, Peter comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times seven? Jesus says, 70 times seven. Now, you're not supposed to go, 490. Okay. I'm almost at the limit, you know. That's not the point. The point is, stop counting. Forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive because the cross of Jesus Christ is this infinite reservoir of forgiveness. That's the idea. The cross of Jesus Christ is this infinite reservoir of forgiveness. And we're to embody that and live that out. Someone say amen. That's good stuff. <laughs> I grew up as a Pentecostal, so you have to, you know. Just give me my, my leeway when, when those moments come, okay? Um, so forgiveness is really the linchpin of it all. We're God's new creations because he has forgiven us. How much more should we be forgiving people? Are you willing to acknowledge your need of God's grace by extending it to those around you? Are you willing to live out the power of the cross by forgiving those who've hurt you? Again, every time you forgive, you're reenacting the gospel. And then in verse 14, it says, And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The metaphor, starting in verse 12, was putting on, right? Almost this idea of being clothed. Remember, we talked about that a few moments ago. And now Paul says, And put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. It's like the top coat. I'm into wilderness, you know, hiking and survival, and uh, who knows about, well, 
well, you're from the Midwest, I'm sure you know this. In California, a lot of people don't know about this, but it's called layering, right? You know, <laughs> California people don't know about layering, you know, <laughs> you guys know about it here. But it was a big deal when I learned about it, layering, oh, you put on different layers, not just one big massive coat, you know? Anyway, you know, one layer goes o- over your skin, the other layer in, the other layer uh, insulates you. I didn't know about this my whole life until, you know, a few years back. Uh, and then finally, there's a layer. There's one final layer. It's called your outer shell. And it, it's not an insulating layer, but it protects you from the rain. And here's what happens if you're in the wilderness and you don't have a rain shell or a snow shell, all of your insulating layers, if they get wet, they become ineffective. So you have to have your outer shell to bind all those other layers together to make sure that they all work. Well, that's how love works. Love binds all of those other virtues together and keeps them from being ineffective. Because you can't truly be humble, and you can't truly be meek, and you can't truly be patient, and you can't truly have a heart of compassion if you don't have love. It binds all those things together. Love binds all of those virtues in perfect harmony. Um, And then secondly, um, our lives are to be ruled by peace and thanksgiving. In verse 15, he says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called into one body, and be thankful. So the first, number one, uh, we're to be clothed in grace and forgiveness. And then number two now, our lives are to be ruled by peace and thanksgiving. Um, I think Paul is doing something a little subversive here. If you know anything about ancient Rome, one of the things about Rome was that Rome was the, supposed to be you know, the civilized world. Uh, Rome would boast about the Pax Romana. Who knows what that means? The peace of Rome. So Rome was the light. Rome was the civilized world, and people outside of Rome were considered barbarians. And Rome brought to the world, and they really did, they brought to the world with with rule and governance, a sense of peace and order. But what Paul is doing here is somewhat subversive because what he's saying is um, it's not the rule of Rome's peace that guides us, right, who the emperor is lord over, but let the peace of Christ, who's the true king of the world, some people may, some scholars may disagree with this, but I think, I think I'm on to something here. I think this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, let the peace of Christ, not the peace of Rome, the peace of Christ rule and govern your heart, to which indeed you are called into one body. And there's this counterclaim. If, if, if you're in the first century and you hear someone say that the peace of Christ, not the peace of Rome, is to govern your life, that's really subversive. If you live in the first century under Roman occupation and Roman rule and Roman authority. Paul is saying as Christians, we live in another empire. We have another ruler besides Caesar, Jesus Christ. Christians are called to peace. Listen to what a writer in the second century named Aristides wrote to the Roman emperor Hadrian about Christians. Listen to this, okay? Their oppressors... They appease and make them their friends. They love one another. He's writing to the emperor about Christians. You know, you've got, get a load of these people, you know. 
And from, he says, and they love one another. And from widows, they don't turn away their esteem. And they deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. And he who has gives to him who has not, without boasting. In other words, they give their money away and they don't, they don't broadcast it to the world. They help the poor. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. For they do not call them brethren after the flesh, but brethren after the spirit and in God. And whenever one of their poor passes from the world, each one of them, according to his ability, gives heed to him and carefully sees to his burial. Virtuous living is the mark that we serve the true ruler of the world, the Prince of Peace. It says to the world that we serve a different God. It says to the world that we serve the true master of the, of the universe. That's what it says. And we're to be thankful people, right? But why? Why is thankfulness so important? You know, I mean, we can't, uh, why can't we just be, you know, pessimistic and cynical like everyone else? Well, here's the, here's the linchpin to the whole, the, the peace paradigm. Thankfulness is the identity marker of the new humanity. Christians are thankful people. We ought to be thankful people, right? The world is, is pessimistic and cynical. And above all things, we ought to be thankful people. And there's something behind being thankful. Being thankful is really a symbol that you're not trusting in your own self-sufficiency. Um, in her book, Narcissistic Pathology of Everyday Life, um, Nancy McWilliams, she writes this. She says, we frequently resist expressing wholehearted appreciation and thanksgiving since that would acknowledge a previous insufficiency of some sort. That's why, one of the reasons why it's hard for us to be thankful. Because it, it insults the idea of the grandiose self. We resist the idea of being thankful because it, it, it demonstrates that we needed something. But that's exactly what God wants us to do, and that's exactly where he wants us to be. He wants us to live in that place where we're always recognizing, yeah, God, I am who I am by the grace of God, and, and broadcast that out to others, to be thankful people. And then lastly, uh, actually, let me back up one moment, one, uh, a verse about thankfulness um, in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, it says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So being thankful, just to wrap that point up, means we're thankful in all things. We are. And that, that might be hard for some of us to really, really gra grapple with that. Right? How can you be thankful for bad things? We're thankful for the good and the bad things because we know that a sovereign God controls all things. Romans 8.28 that all things are working together for the good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. That's why we're thankful. Because even the bad things in our life, God is working out for his glory and our good, for your good. God is working out the bad things in your life for his glory and your good. He is.
And then lastly, the new humanity is to be a worshiping community. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. Um, I guess the question is this. Um, do we love what we worship or do we worship what we love? Just think about that for a moment. Do we love what we worship or do we worship what we love? Whatever we're passionate about, um, you share with others. You're naturally evangelistic about the things that you're into, right? Uh, um, a few weeks back, I gave a story about how I lost, had lost 40 pounds and I carried a water bottle around with me everywhere I went. And in a few weeks, everybody in the grocery store was carrying a water bottle around. I mean, everywhere you went, you saw, you know, gallons of water everywhere. I mean, we weren't drinking, you know, little, little skinny smart waters. I mean, we was, it was a whole gallon, you know. Uh, and subsequently, people were always running back and forth to the bathroom. But, um, but I was evangelistic about it because it was working for me, and I was excited about it. Um, James K. Smith calls this principle um, of worshiping the things we love, um, you know, he calls it... Our, a cultural liturgy. So he says, if aliens were to come to North America, they would determine that, you know, we worship consumerism because our temples are shopping malls. You know, the buildings that everyone, you know, from a bird's eye view, the buildings that everyone runs into, you know, all the time, our biggest buildings, our biggest buildings in our culture are our shopping malls. They would say, well, these people worship whatever's inside of there. That's their temple. And so, because we're a consumeristic culture, is the point he makes. And he's just making this one, one particular point about consumerism, among other things, is um, we, we tend to exemplify uh, kind of a, a, a liturgy, a worship about, about it. And, and, and it. and it spills over. We talk about it. We share it with people. Um, and in the same way, um, the things that we love, we inadvertently end up worshiping and we sing songs about it you know I mean you see the commercials on television right how do they how do they you know every ad has a song and you're I mean to this day you know we can't forget the Oscar Mayer you know song I'm not saying we worship baloney I'm just saying you know it's it's the, the point I'm trying to make is you know uh uh when people are trying to sell things or whatever, there's, there's, a, there's music, there's praise, there's all these things that accompany it. And what Paul is saying here is that uh, if the word of God is dwelling in us, like other things dwell in us, whether it's our love for clothes or our love for music or our love for nice cars, if the word of God is dwelling richly in us, that's going to spill over in a liturgy, a cultural, a natural liturgy where we're teaching other people, admonishing others about the word of God singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our heart. Um, we worship the things we love and end up teaching, um, not by way of catechesis or theological instruction, but simply by practice. Just by practice. It spills over. And Paul is saying this. He's saying, I said all that to say this. If we love God and the word of Christ, the gospel will dwell in us. 
and will teach and will admonish others, which means that evangelism and missional thinking happens naturally. When the gospel and Christ's words are dwelling in us, and he and his word and his message is the object of our love, it'll naturally spill over. We'll, we'll, we won't have to think about even teaching. We'll just share it. We'll share the message of the gospel. We'll sing about it. You know, someone walk by, you know, they're hearing you sing a hymn or something. I mean, it just, it just comes pouring out of you when it's really in you, when it's really the object of your love. Our challenge is this. This is our challenge. We love Jesus, but do we love him more than those other things? That's the challenge. It's not a sin to, you know, go to the mall. It's not a sin to like a certain car or anything, any of those things. The, the challenge for us is do we love Jesus more than all of those other things? That's the challenge for us. That's, that's where we need to examine our own hearts. And then finally, here's the here's the. The, 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 the goal that all of this is moving towards. The next verse in verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. How do you embody that? How do you embody that kind of cultural liturgy where the object of our love, Jesus Christ, spills over into every area of our life? We do everything in the name of Jesus. The, uh, the, the, then another verse in the New Testament that kind of is a reflection of this verse is 1 Corinthians 10.30, where it says, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Whatever you do, you know, all, all that you do, do it all for God's glory. And that's the idea, that we'll be spilling over in admonishing one another, teaching one another, singing psalms with a thankful heart when we do all things for the glory of God. This is what it looks like to put on the new humanity. This is what it looks like to be the new creation. It means that Jesus' message, his name, his kingdom, his glory are always in view. It's always in view. It never, it never jumps off of the screen. It, it's always in front of us. His name, his kingdom, his glory are always in front of us. Whatever we do, wherever we go, Whoever we talk to. It doesn't always mean we're going around saying, you know, Jesus, 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 Jesus. It just means it's there. It's just right under the surface at any moment waiting to bubble up. Because that's who we are. We're Christ's people. We're kingdom people. We worship Christ not just in church but in all of life. That's the idea. That worship is embodied by us not just in this place. This is just a corporate get-together for us. And, and listen, this is important because it's the time where we come together with other believers, but it doesn't end here. It's supposed to continue throughout the week. This is what it means to live Christ-centered lives shaped by the gospel. This is what it means to put on the new humanity. Let's pray. Lord, um, we're still wrestling through um, the gap between who we are and how we live. Lord, we're trying to come to grips with uh, the disjunction between our status as holy, beloved, elect children of God and the fact that we don't always exemplify and behave in a way 
that proclaims that status of who and what we are. And so, Lord, we pray now that you would help us to clothe ourselves with these virtues, that we would be forgiving people, that love would animate all that we do, um, that, we would, um, that we would live lives of gratitude and thankfulness, recognizing that every day we need you. Lord, in our families, in our marriages, in our homes, at school, at work, in our neighborhoods, even just getting on the freeway to protect us from, from danger, we need you. And Lord, fill our hearts with the gratitude and thanksgiving that you're keeping us, you're with us. And Lord, uh, we pray also for our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world who are suffering persecution and death and violence. Our problems can seem small compared to those things. And Lord God, we pray that you would make us a worshiping people and that worship wouldn't stop the moment service stops, but worship would pour out into our everyday life, that we would see all of life as worship, that you are to be proclaimed, that all that we're to do, we're to do in the name of Jesus Christ, giving glory to the Father. Lord, we pray these things in your Son's name. Amen. As the ushers come forward with the offertory baskets, would you take a moment and reflect on what Jordan has said about putting on these new virtues and having Christ be the object of our love far greater than anything else we might put our eye to.
happy place I'll be forever blessed for I shall see my father's face and in his bosom Jordan said this morning really hit a bell, eh? hit a home run. Uh, when you think about uh, loving people and uh, acting like you know Jesus and how you drive on the highway, uh, you know, I mean, you really think about how we live as everyday people to reflect Jesus, how this church, each one of us could reflect him this week and the way we act and the way we talk, the way we do things. One time somebody said, you know, Jesus, he talked about worshiping something. He said, I'll tell you what you do when you get home today. Go get out your statement of your credit card and look where you spent your money. Who do you worship? But you know, when you talk about the virtues that uh, he just went over, they're all reflected in Jesus. <laughs> you know, he was the one, the great one, who forgave us and loved us and sacrificed himself for us so we could celebrate the great victory that he had when he bought us back, when he redeemed us, when we didn't have a chance. That's my story. He bought me back, and I became a new creation in Christ. And we celebrate that tomorrow, uh, t uh, today as we partake in the elements, uh, it's not just bread and grape juice or wine. It really represents what Christ has done for us.